Well, before summer hit, we were going through the book of Luke, and today we're going to jump back into it with a teaching moment that Jesus had with his disciples that took place in the middle of a storm. And three of the four gospel writers all give us their account of this life-changing moment. And so it must be, if three of the four all give us their account of this, it must be that this is a critical piece in our understanding of who Jesus is and how he's called us to live now in the storms of this world. And so I'm going to actually have us read two of those three accounts. Let's start with Luke. Go to Luke chapter 8, beginning of verse 22. Let me hear the pages turning. Or you're swiping your app. Not quite as exciting, but I want you to see it for yourself. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake. You need to understand the geography of this location of the lake and mountains and altitude. This was common, but this was not just a little storm. They would have what seasoned sailors would call a squall. The word in the Greek is more like hurricane, and it would come up so suddenly and so violently, these things were quite terrifying. That's why it's saying come down. It came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Now jump back to Mark. Jump back to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. What I love about the Gospels is more than one person gives us account of things, and you'll get a little different details from someone else. Mark 4.35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. In the Greek right there, be still is literally be muzzled. I put a muzzle on you. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So what can we learn from this storm that could help us 
in the storms we're facing today? Well, here's the first thing, number one. Don't think that Jesus in your life will keep all the storms out of it. Oh, that's a mistake we make. It's what we want to believe. And and what I just said right now will not sell books. It won't get me on television. Don't think that Jesus in your life will keep storms out of it. Look at Mark 4.36 again. They took him with them in the boat. In other words, I got Jesus in my life now in the boat with me. We won't head into any more storms because Jesus is in the boat. We were facing storms because we didn't have Jesus. Oh, listen, you can find that kind of talk and teaching on Christian television networks and a lot of the best-selling Christian books. You just can't find it in, say it, anywhere, Old or New Testament. But it's what we so desperately want to believe is true that people buy books that say it. And they jerk verses out of context occasionally and put a little something together to say it. But the Bible doesn't say that. Because God's word doesn't promise. You realize God's word does not promise you'll never head into another storm. You know what it promises? You'll never be in another storm again alone. He's with you. He's with you. He's with you in it, in it. In fact, here's what you need to realize from the scripture. He often leads us right into a storm because the storms of this life are under his sovereign, loving, wise, good control. And he uses them to accomplish his purposes in us of making us more like him. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see Jesus did not keep himself from all the storms, and he didn't promise to do it for us either. Look at what I'm talking about in Luke 8. Go back to Luke 8, verse 22. He said to them, Luke 8, 22, let us go across to the other side of the lake, and they set out. Here's what we struggle with, right? It was his idea. He led them into it, and they obeyed. They set out. We tend to think, as long as I'm obeying God, he said to tithe, I'm tithing. This church says get in a small group. I'm in a group. I'm serving. I'm teaching a kid's class. As long as I'm obeying, it'll help. no storms will hit me. Storms are for rebellious Christians. Storms are for unbelievers. If I obey, if I do the things that God's word says, I won't face storms. That's not what the Bible teaches. Don't hear me saying don't obey. But the Bible didn't promise if you're obeying me, following me, loving me, you won't head into a storm. You don't find it in the Bible. Listen, sometimes knowing, loving, and following Jesus will lead you right into a storm. You realize you can be in the center of God's will, as some Christians like to talk about, 
and in the center of a storm at the same time. Center of God's will, center of a storm at the same time. Because knowing and doing God's will does not eliminate storms. Now, now I know what some of you just thought. Then what good is following Jesus for crying out loud? I had storms without him. I thought now there won't be any. Well, stay with me a minute. Knowing and doing God's will will not eliminate storms. But it will reduce the number of unnecessary storms you have to go through. You'll never be in a storm like Jonah for your rebellion. I mean, we just came out of Jonah, right? Storm. But it's because he was going in the opposite. God said, go to Nineveh. He said, I'm gonna find a ship to Tarshish as far away as I can go. That was a storm because of his rebellion. If you follow Jesus, you want to know him and you listen and you follow and you obey, you'll never be in a storm because of your rebellion. But you could find yourself in a storm just like the disciples here because you obeyed, got in the boat, and followed him as he led you right into one. In fact, some of you would testify, I would believe, my life only got hard after I became a Christian, right? Things only began to get hard and stormy and complicated because now I've got a friend group that doesn't understand. I've got biological family members that are attacking me. I've got difficulties at work. I never used to care about ethics. If they said, say the checks in the mail, I could say the checks in the mail. I could be dishonest. I I could sleep around. Now I'm trying to fight my flesh and not give in to... Things seem so much harder and stormy now. Yeah. When you don't know him and you're just going with the culture, going with the flow, going with your flesh, that can be easier. You can get into the boat and follow him into a storm. So here's my point. Because I see Christians make this mistake all the time. Here's the mistake I see Christians make. Don't let the storms in your life be the only litmus test as to whether or not you think you're doing the will of God and following Jesus. I thought God wanted me to do this. Oh, but it's gotten so hard. Everything's so hard. And then I hear people make the other mistake. Oh, we know this is God's will. It's just all so easy. Oh, here's the favorite phrase. Doors are opening. Doors are opening. People besides God can open doors. Do not conclude if it's easy, I must be in the center of God's will. If it gets hard, I guess I didn't hear him. Folks, God calls us to do hard things. And when you are living differently with a different agenda, following a different leader, King Jesus, who has a different kingdom mindset altogether, an upside down kingdom, the first shall be last, serve, give your life away. You're gonna face adversity. You're gonna face difficulties You're gonna get resistance not only from your flesh but from our enemy Satan and our culture. Don't. You might be in a storm today and it's a Jonah storm and it's your rebellion. 
But do not make the mistake of just letting storms in your life be the only litmus test as to whether or not you think you're doing the will of God and following him. You can be in the will of God and in a storm at the same time. The disciples were. And if you think that's not loving, stay with me. Jesus does love us. He loves us so much that he will often lead us right into a storm to teach us something in the middle of it. I love teaching. My undergrad degree is actually in teaching, Bible teaching. I love to read about teaching, the concept of teaching, what is effective teaching. Do you realize Jesus is the master teacher? Jesus is the master teacher, so he loves teachable moments, look at me, and storms are some of the best. Storms are some of the best teachable moments. You realize a master teacher, the biggest challenge is not, are you good at explaining something in a very clear way and applying it so that lives can be changed? None of that does any good. Unless you've got the student's attention first. The biggest challenge is, do I have your attention before I begin to explain this? Here's the truth about us, you guys. We're just like puppies, just rolling around in the backyard when life is good. He's talking, he's calling to us, he's trying to teach. We ain't paying attention. When storms hit, it's like, Oh, God, you got my attention. Now, don't hear me saying he's a mean God. He just, his finger quivers over the smite button. They're just having too much fun. It's time to make them suffer again. He's a good God. He's a good father. But his goals are so often not our goals. Happiness is not his goal. Holiness, becoming more like Jesus, becoming more like Jesus, Oh my goodness, storms are teachable, teachable moments. But here's what I would add. You say, well, I've been through a lot of storms and I don't think I've learned anything. Yeah, that might be true. You gotta be asking the right questions in the storm. You must ask better questions in the storm. Because the question that most often just rules us, it just takes over. You ready? I think you're going to recognize this. Why? Why? Why is this happening? What did I do to deserve this? And we start listing all the things we're doing right, which shows we still fall into, even if we die on the hill of saved by grace, we still think My relationship with him is based on things that I merit and do to earn it. I'm doing all these things Christians aren't doing. I should be protected. I should not have a storm. I should not face adversity. You've got to ask the right question, not just why is this happening? Here's what I've learned. I got saved when I was seven. I've been a pastor for 35 years now. I'm not saying I'm better than you, ahead of you. This is me too, but let me tell you something I've learned. I have learned that that question, why, why, why is this happening? I rarely get an answer to that, and it rarely bears good fruit in my life. You say, well, what's a better question? Glad you asked. I'm gonna give you some. 
You ready? Oh, let me give you some better questions. Consider asking this. Oh, God, what do you want me to see about you and about me in light of you in the middle of this storm that I've never understood before, that I haven't seen before? Oh, God, show me more of you because I don't know you well enough. And stay with me. Show me more of me, because I actually don't know myself as well as I should. You say, well, it's me, I would know me. No, you wouldn't. Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it? So here's what storms do. They reveal to you that you're often not where you thought you were. Oh, listen, sure, I've been shocked by the flock. I've had some flock shock over the last 18 months. Oh, I thought they were, oh, I thought I'd taught. Oh, I thought we were a different kind of church family. Oh, but not picking on you. You know what my greatest shock has been? Me. I've been startled by me. Ooh, wow. In storms. We've had them, haven't we? This has been a stormy season. You guys stop running around like Satan this and Satan that and politics this and that and that. God is up to something and he's good and I believe he wants to refine the church of Jesus Christ, particularly in America, and get us ready for some of the best days ever. And best is not synonymous with easy. Best is harvest, kingdom come, Jesus, people crying out, I need something more than just income and the Wall Street and this, that, and the other. These could be some of the best days, but he's got to refine his church and get us ready to truly know who we are and where we are and to know him better so that we can follow him tenaciously and watch him use us in our weakness. But to do that, you've got to ask the right questions. Oh, God, What do you want me to learn through this? What do you want me to learn through this? How do you want me to grow? What do you want me to learn through this? How do you want me to grow? Because get this, because I don't want to waste this storm. Now, I'll be honest, there's a little caveat I have to the side that I often think, I don't want to waste it because I don't want to go through another one real quick. So what, God is sovereign. He doesn't just throw storms our way for no reason. What do you want me to learn? Because I have found when you just put your head down and say, let's just get through this. Let's just get through this. Let's just get through this. I can't understand why it's happening. Why, 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 why? Let's just get through it. If that's all that happens in it, hello, storm B, storm C, storm D. How long you want this to go on? And, and it's not because he's a bad dad. He's good. But he doesn't give in like some moms and dads. When, when the kid throws a tantrum, never mind, I'll put your shoes away for you and here's a popsicle. Never, never. He's the best dad ever. He stays with it. What he wants to teach you, he will teach you. You can go ahead and start learning it in this storm or you'll get to learn it in the next. What do you want me to learn, show me more of you. 
and show me more of me in light of you. Readjust my thinking as to who I think I am, where I think I am, and who I understand you to be. Do you realize, don't hear me saying storms are fun. Do you realize there is a sweet spot in the eye of a storm? Where, yeah, it's a storm, but you've come to know him in ways you didn't know him before. You are resting him in, in him ways you didn't. Oh yeah, there were some truths you said you believed, but once you revisited them and decided I still believe it in the storm and you own it and you claim it and it's yours, it's yours in a way that Christians who have not suffered or been in the storm don't understand. It's sweet, it's better, I'm more grounded, I'm more of an oak of righteousness, I'm not as easily blown over and I know him. You guys, the greatest joy in this life is not Wall Street, is not a bigger home, is not a vacation. It is knowing him. He's the most delightful, beautiful, wonderful person to know. But we often only begin to know him in the storm. In the storm. Ask the right questions. Set aside that why, why, why is this happening? And try what? What do you want me to see about you, about me? Number two, don't jump to conclusions or misinterpret the storm you're in. Ooh, we do this all the time. Boom, because feelings kick in immediately. And we draw conclusions based on our feelings. In other words, don't be sloppy in your thinking. Don't be unbiblical in your thinking. Look at me. Or you just might be ungodly in your storm. Do you know children of God can act very ungodly in storms if they're not thinking? If you allow your thinking to be sloppy and you go with your feelings or you grab hold of the thinking of the world or here's the real problem, you go with your own human reasoning. Doesn't make sense to me. I wouldn't do that to a child of mine. Don't be sloppy in your thinking. Don't be unbiblical or you just might be ungodly in the storm. The disciples do exactly what we so often are guilty of doing today. Look what they say in Mark 4.38. Mark 4.38. Teacher, and it ends with a question mark. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Guess what that is? That is not a question. That's an ugly rhetorical accusation. You don't care. You don't care. You don't care. You don't love us. You don't care. They're not asking a question. They're making an ugly accusation because they've already concluded if you cared about us, this would not be happening to us. If you cared about us, this wouldn't be happening to us. They're saying, Lord, it's the same thing we often think, Lord, we thought if we followed you and you were with us, we would have little problems, not life-threatening problems like this. We had storms like this without you. So I want you to notice what's actually missing from both these passages. Luke 8, Mark 4. Did you notice anything missing? Life-threatening storm. They really thought they were gonna die. Waves are breaking into the boat. It is sinking they don't even ask him for help. 
You go reread them both and see if I'm wrong. They don't ask him for help. Why? Because they've already concluded, if you loved us, and if you had power to do something, you would have already stopped it from happening in the first place. Love would cause you to want to do it, and power would cause you to choose to do it. If you loved us, you would want to stop it. If you had power, you would have stopped it. Therefore, you're either not loving, not powerful, or you don't exist at all, and I'm on the wrong path. Do you not care that we're perishing? You don't care. Because in their minds, Jesus being with them and loving them is not compatible with allowing them to be in the center of a storm again. These two things can't be happening at the same time. If you love us and you have powerful and you have power, we wouldn't be in a storm. This this can't be happening. Incompatible, incompatible, incompatible. These two things can't go together. And so if this passage teaches us anything, it teaches us this. If you start with a human, wrong, unbiblical premise, you will arrive at a very, very wrong conclusion about him. If you're thinking his presence with me and his love for me would never allow me to go through a terrifying storm, if that's your starting premise, you will regularly fight horrible, scary thoughts about your Savior. Therefore, is he not good? I don't guess he's good. Is he not power? He doesn't have power? Some of you, I want to help you, but I'm going to have to hurt you a little bit first. Some of you are living with terrible conclusions about your Savior because you keep holding on to the way you think it should be instead of the way he actually promised it would be. And here's what happens. As you keep holding on to this human reasoning premise of how you think it should be, and it doesn't happen, it causes you to pull back from him, question him, doubt him, which then only exacerbates the level of pain and suffering you're going through because now you're still in the storm, but you're distant from him. You don't trust him, you question him, and you're all the more alone in it. Wrong premise, wrong conclusion. Because you keep trying to live by your own premise instead of laying hold of a precious actual promise. Let me ask you today, what's in your hand? What are you clinging to? Your own premise of what makes sense to you and how you think it should be? Or an actual, an actual, biblical, precious eternal promise. Your premise will fail you over and over again. His promise never will. 
Some of you have slid over here and thought, he's failing me, he's failing me, he's failing me. His promises are not true. Your premises are failing you and he loves you enough to let the premises be pulled right out from under you so that you would actually come to him and lay hold of promises instead of your own premises and your life will change. Doesn't mean there'll be no storm but it means you'll begin to have a peace in the storm that you just could not have. And you'll begin to know him in ways that you could not have. And there will be an intimacy with him that you did not have in the eye of the storm. You better be holding on to a promise like Hebrews 13.5. Be content with what you have. Because God has said never Will I let you go into a storm again? Thank you, no. (laughs) Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we may say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You better be holding on to an actual, biblical, precious, eternal promise like Isaiah 43. Fear not, I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. Keyword, when, not if, not if, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Those are promises. Those are promises. Some of you know the story of Elizabeth Elliot whose husband and four other missionaries were speared to death in 1956. As they tried to take the gospel to an unreached people group, a group of Indians called the Alcas in Ecuador. And you can imagine, you can imagine how it left Elizabeth and four other young widows now who all had young children wrestling with the same questions we would wrestle with. Weren't we serving God? Weren't we in the middle of sacrificing, leaving America and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? He said, take it to the ends of the earth. We were in the middle of obeying him. We were doing kingdom business. We were sacrificing. Why would he let this happen to us? All the same questions we would have. But she looked for answers by reading her Bible. How much of it? Say it louder. All of it. Instead of just combing over her circumstances incessantly, and instead of drilling down into her feelings, oh, trust me, she's, she's no different than us. Her feelings weren't saying, oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. He's good, he's he's good all the time. Her feelings did not lead her to conclude any of the things she said for the rest of her life as she spoke and wrote and lived for his glory. 
Her circumstances did not finally lead her to conclude the things that she said. The scriptures did. And as she, as she cried out and turned to the scriptures and wrestled her way through trying to know what should I conclude about God and what he might be doing? What do I conclude about God and what he might be doing in the midst of a storm like this? She wrote a book titled Through the Gates of Splendor where she concludes this, and I quote, God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And, and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he might be up to. God is the God of human history and he's at work continuously, mysteriously, accomplishing his eternal purposes in us, through us, for us, and in spite of us. For us widows, the question as to why the men who had trusted God should be allowed to be speared to death was not one, listen to her honesty, was not one that could be smoothly or finally answered in 1956, nor yet silenced in 1996. Do you know what she's saying? She's, she wrote this book in 1996, 40 years after her husband was speared to death, and she is saying, I still don't have answers to that why. Why, why? But she went on and served him without bitterness because she says this next. God did not answer Job's questions either. Job was living in a mystery, the mystery of the sovereign purpose of God and the questions that rose out of the depths of that mystery were answered only by a deeper mystery, that of God himself. If you know anything about the book of Job, you know that it's 42 chapters long, not because it's filled with such a detailed explanation for our suffering that it took that long to give the answer. No, but because it's filled with a greater revelation of who God is in the midst of it and how his ways are so much higher than ours. When God finally does answer, because of course Job said what we often say, if just he was here, if just I could question him, if just I could question him, if just he was here, if just we could even go to court together and I could bring God into court, if just, if just, if just. And God shows up in chapter 38. And from 38 to 42, God asked Job 74 questions. He said, where were you? Where were you when I hung the earth on its axis? Yeah, that kind of stuff. Where, where were, do you know how I make hail? Do you know how I make ice? Do you know how I make snow? Do you know how all the creatures in the depths of the ocean keep doing what they do? Do you know how the seasons turn? He said, do you know, do you know, do you know, do you know? Where were you, where were you, where were you, where were you? Because basically, Job is saying what we're saying. I don't understand this. And so God said, there's a lot you don't understand, Job. 
a whole lot you don't understand. He didn't give him an explanation. He gave him a greater revelation of who God is. And that just reminded him, my ways are higher than you. My ways are higher than you. You can't fathom what I might be doing. Even when you read Joseph, we have the advantage of reading some of these stories and we see it all now and it's done. When you read Genesis 37 to 50, oh, Joseph never got a memo from God at 17 saying, hey, buck up. I know your brothers just threw you in a pit. This is pretty awful. You're on a camel with people who don't even speak your language. You're being sold in slavery in the marketplace. But I have a plan. I have a plan. I actually need you to be in Egypt because there's going to be a famine. And there's this nation that I raised up to actually bring the Messiah to save sinners from hell. And I need you there to feed that nation because Satan's trying to wipe them out before the Messiah ever arrives. Would have been helpful. <laughs> All righty, I'm your man, God. Especially after, here's what happens, right? We tend to think, all right, as, as soon as the storm hits, I'm gonna have a good attitude, I'm gonna have a good attitude, and as I have a good attitude, he'll bless me. Joseph's a hard worker. He has a good attitude. So he rises, and he becomes the personal servant of Potiphar, and instead of being blessed, his wife tries to take him to bed. He does the right thing. He says no, and he runs, but she grabs his jacket on the way out, and then she lies and actually says he tried to rape her, and Potiphar throws him in the deepest dungeon. You would think that would have been it then. I'm so done with God. So done. But it wasn't. And a cupbearer and a bread maker land down there. And he has a dream and he tells them both. One was good news. You're going to live. You're dying soon. But the one that was going to live, he said, please remember me. Remember me before Pharaoh. I'm down here and I've done nothing wrong. He didn't. Two more years go by. You guys... He was 17, he was 37 before someone said, you know, there's a guy down there that actually interprets dreams and God did what God is gonna do. He trusted him. You'll find five times in Genesis 37 to 50, it says this, and you might think, you gotta be kidding me, the Lord was with Joseph. But the Lord was, what, the Lord's with Joseph? Why is that happening? Why is he there? Why is he there? You can be in the will of God and you can be with God, following God, and find yourself in the middle of a storm. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. My favorite sport is cranked back up, football. So much better than other things. That's a different sermon. But if you watch any football, surely you've noticed this. The head coach on the sideline always has a headset. I mean, it's his favorite thing to jerk off and slam to the ground, right? But there's got to be another reason for wearing it. Why the headset? You know why? Because almost always the offensive coordinator and usually the defensive coordinator are not even on the sideline close to the action. Where are they? way up high above the stadium, seated where they can see the entire field of play. Do you realize those closest to the action often have the worst perspective and the least understanding of what actually is going on? You realize that? 
I could give you all kinds of illustrations. You know, children standing there with the, with the city parade holding their mom and dad's hand. All they see are ankles and knees going by. I thought there was going to be a clown. I thought there was going to, yeah, there's a clown. You can't see it. Right? Perspective when you're right there, right close, right in it happening. Please don't make the mistake of thinking you have an amazing perspective on this and a great understanding of what actually is going on. And that's why the head coach can be screaming into his headset, why do they keep moving the ball on us? Why can't we stop the run? Why can't we stop the run? What is going on? The coach seated high above it all has to be the one to say to him, the linebackers are lining up way too deep. They can't get to the gaps and stop the run in time. Move the linebackers forward. Those closest to the action often have the worst perspective and least understanding of what's actually going on. I hope I don't need to help you understand this. That's us on the field, on the ground, here on this earth, in the middle of a storm, while God sees all, knows all, and is working all things together, he promised, for his glory and our good. Nothing is random. And this is not a yin-yang situation where there's Satan and there's God, and right now, this is Satan getting the upper hand in my life. Nothing. The book of Job may disturb you, but here's something that's very clear. Satan had to get permission from God to do anything. Now you can stay up the rest of the night wondering why he gave it. But there's still a comfort. Nothing can come into your life apart from the sovereign, sovereign purposes and loving, wise purposes of your father. If you could really get a hold of this, and if I could really get a hold of this, we would actually say, God, here's what I'm asking for. It's not wrong to pray and ask. He said, plead. He said, ask. Go for it. But we would have a measure of this. God, here's what I'm asking for. But please give me what I would have asked for if I could see everything you see and know everything you know. Not my will, but yours be done. You know anybody that prayed that way? Jesus. In the garden. Fully human. Fully human and fully God. So trust me, his fully human side did not want to go into the eye of this storm. And yet he knew that he'd been sent for this very purpose. And yet he still said, oh, Father, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. He, he pleaded three times, so earnest, so distraught, that the accounts tell us capillaries in his forehead burst and he sweat great drops of blood. This is not fantasy. There's, there's historical record of this with Roman soldiers prior to going on into battle because they were so distraught and filled with tense tension. And then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
Did the father love his son? What well, doesn't seem like it. He loved his son. But listen to me. He loved us enough to give his son. And his son agreed to come and do it and take on flesh. For God so loved the world that he say it. Gave. Not one of a dozen sons. And this was his least favorite. His only begotten son. We tend to get so worked up in the storm. Why, 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 why would this be happening? You know the why that we don't ask it often enough that should just, it, we should wake up every day and say it again. Why would he save me? Why would he die for me? Why would he put my sins on his son? Why would he adopt me when I was an enemy? Why, why, why? Oh, thank you, God. I'll never forget one night when I was counseling and there was a storm and I was trying to help this person. This wasn't session one and I'm talking about the cross again and who he is and what he did so you can know he loves you and my counselee crossed their arms and leaned back and said, honestly, Pastor Brad, that does nothing for me. I wanna know what God has done for me lately. Now you guys, the day that the thought of Christ's death for you, taking your sin and the wrath of God on him does nothing for you, is a really bad day. And should put a ginormous question mark over, do you even realize what has been done and are you born again? Your biggest problem is not cancer. It's not a bad marriage. It's not health and suffering. It's not America and politics. Your biggest problem in mine was that you were on your way to hell and there was nothing you could do to stop it. An eternal hell, rightfully so, because of your sin against the holy God. And God took on flesh and came into this world and did for you what you could never do for yourself. That is how we know he loves us. Right there. I don't know if he loves me. Huh, have you forgotten about the cross? Oh, but I don't know if he loves me. Number three, don't just lay back and expect your faith to kick in automatically. Don't just lay back and expect your faith to kick in automatically in the heat of a storm. Do you realize you can have faith? Look at me. You realize you can have faith and not have it show up in the middle of a storm? Notice what he asked his disciples. Luke 8, 25, where is your faith? He doesn't say, why don't you have it? He's like, where is it? It ought to be showing up now. It ought to kick in now. Get it out. Activate it now. So this teaches us something about faith, you guys. Contrary to popular opinion, faith is not a feeling, faith is not an impulse, and faith is not something that just automatically kicks in in the heat of a storm. Sure, if you're a believer, then you exercise some faith to trust him. And you might say, I'm reading my Bible regularly, and I, I heard from Romans that, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, so the word of God grows our faith, so I'm feeding my faith, I have faith, Great, you're ahead of the person who has no faith and doesn't feed it. But you could still go right into a storm and be undone because you didn't activate it. It has to be activated in the moment over 
and over and over. Just because you activated your faith in the last storm doesn't mean it'll be right here automatically in the new one. In other words, what I'm talking about is that you can't just set it and forget it. It's not like your thermostat. I wish. Where you just say, this is now what I believe. I'm going there and I'm setting the thermostat of my faith. This is what I believe about God and our world and his promises and who I am as a child of God in this world. I'm setting it right there. And then as soon as the heat comes, it just kicks. Yesterday I was burning up in the basement. I'm burning up now. I was burning up in the basement practicing my sermon. I just went upstairs and I went to the thermostat. I said, give me cold. If it gets above 67, now it's 72, I want it to kick on. And I'm down there preaching away on the couch to the television, and poof, I started feeling cold air. Uh, The rest of my practice, it just came on automatically. That is not how faith works. You can't set it and forget. You realize you can do well at one point in your life with a trial and later just totally blow it. When you read your Bible, how much? You'll see examples. I'm thinking about King Asa, who had a million-man army coming, a million Ethiopians. Really ferocious army is coming against him, and he trusts God. He activates his faith, and he prays this prayer. He's like, God, numbers are nothing to you. He had like 380,000 in his army. He's like, numbers are nothing to you. You are God. Glorify yourself. Help us. And they won. You would think he forevermore would say, oh, my goodness, I'll never doubt God again. Just a few years later, another army was coming. He took gold and silver and sent it to Damascus to some pagan king in Syria and said, come help us. And then he got a disease in his feet. Don't hear me saying don't go to your doctor. But go to your doctor and pray. And it says he would not seek the Lord, but just the physicians. I don't know what happened in his thinking, but it ended very poorly. His life ended poorly. Did he have faith? We did back here. It doesn't mean he's not a Christian. He did not activate it in the moment. You can get off. And here's what I think is interesting. I've watched sometimes we can pull out the faith when it's just a huge thing and sometimes struggle when it's something smaller. Or for some reason in our minds, it just shouldn't be happening to begin with. I don't know what happens, but I know this. Faith has to be activated in the moment, in the storm, again and again and again, it is not automatic. You can see that faith activation in some of the Psalms, and I've listed some of them before in your bulletin, where it's this phrase, and I love it when I see it. Lord, I have put my trust in you. I gotta put it. It wasn't going there. My feelings were running this way. My thoughts were running this way, and I'm putting my trust in you. Activate, activate, activate. In you I have put my trust Since we're talking about storms as I close, let me take the final few moments to say this. Number four, don't let the storm you're in today keep you from seeing the storm that Jesus already endured for you. There is a far greater storm coming. You guys, you guys, the storm of God's wrath apart from Jesus Christ, is coming for every one of us. How do I know he loves me? Oh, because Jesus stepped into the eye of the greatest storm ever, the wrath of God for 
us. And here's how you know he loves you. That's why Paul said in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's a reason that verb is in the present tense. Why didn't he say God demonstrated his love for us back then? It happened 2,000 years ago. Why does it say he demonstrates? Because there's still no greater way for him to show you his love than the cross. And he's saying there isn't something better I'm gonna do. And often in the storms of this life, you may sense no felt sense of his awareness of what is he doing? I don't think he's doing anything. You look back, oh my goodness, if he would do that for me, if he would step into the greatest storm ever of God's wrath for me, then he's with me in this temporal storm. He's with me even if I don't feel it. He's with me even though my mind might be saying something different. He's with me, I'm gonna lay hold of precious promises and not give it into my own human premise that would take me really bad places concluding really bad things about him which will cause me to pull back and doubt him and question him and then it's just harder. Whereas intimacy with him is available. There's a sweet spot in the eye of the storm. Believer, listen to me. Whatever storm you're in right now, stop combing over the circumstances looking for evidence of his love. Look back. The advantage we have over his disciples, huge, huge advantage we have. Same kind of storms, same kind of doubting his love, but we we go through the storms on the other side of the cross. We can always look back. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also freely give us all things? Therefore I'm persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor sword, nor nakedness, nor famine, nor can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. If he did that then, he will take care of me now. Now. Oh God, thank you for your word, thank you for your spirit, and thank you for your son. Son, that you gave to us to solve our biggest problem. And oh God, how I pray that you would help us to activate our faith in the moment. Oh, I pray today you might by your spirit help some of your children lay down the human premise of how they think it should be and lay hold of precious, unfailing promises that would lead them into a sweet spot in the eye of the storm that would cause others to say, what is this you have? Who is this you know? How do you go through this? And we might be a part of your incredible harvest of souls and people who are headed to hell. Use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.